We're going to be looking in Lamentations chapter 3 today. During my senior year in college, I played a lot of ping pong, or table tennis, as my good friend and regular opponent, George Ashokumar Topu Dash, called it. He's from Bangladesh, and, and when we started playing, he would slaughter me. I mean, he just killed me. If I got a couple of points, I was lucky, and it was only because he got distracted by somebody while he's playing. Inevitably, after the first point of the game, very first point of the game, he would quote a Bangladeshi proverb to me. Morning shows the day. In other words, the way things began is the way they're going to go. Since the game started with me taking the first point, that's how we can expect it to go for the rest of the game. But I improved, and before long, I was taking five or six points, even when he wasn't distracted, and then 10, and then more. Um, one day, I took the first point, and of course, I quoted that proverb back to him. Morning shows the day. As I recall, our other friend, who was uh, one of the smartest guys I ever knew, read more than, than anybody I know. One of my other friends was sitting there, and when I said morning shows the day, he said something like, yeah, but Dr. Johnson says, men live in hope, die in despair. <laughs> he was not the president of my fan club. <laughs> you know, I don't know that Dr. Johnson actually said that, uh, or if he did, what he meant by it. Men live in hope, die in despair. Does that mean that hope is a cheat? That men dream dreams and pursue them only to have their hopes dashed at the last? Will hope prove illusory? Will it be crushed by the inevitable arrival of death? Or does it mean that men live when they have hope? That it's only in hope that people thrive and flourish. And if that's the case, we understand that people who have no hope are not really truly alive. That despair means death to everything that's human in us. Whatever might have been intended, one thing is sure, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, hope faces challenges. It gets tested in the trials of life. Or say rather, faith gets tested in the trials of life. Our faith in God gets tested. And each time we fail the test of faith, we throw a shovel full of dirt on our hope. And if we keep failing those tests of faith, hope disappears. It's buried alive under a mountain of doubt. Faith gets tested. Make no mistake about that. St. Peter, in the first passage we looked at in this Bold Faith series, spoke of the fiery trial that proves our faith. James tells us something very similar, that the trials of various kinds that come into our life will test our faith. Faith gets tested. And if we fail that test again and again, that is, if we squirm this way and that and turn for help to this thing and that, but never entrust ourselves and our situation to God, we will slowly bury our hope. Anyone with a genuine faith in Jesus has hope. But even a committed Christ follower may not know where his hope lies at any given time. It may be buried under the rubble of unbelief and mistrust and need to be uncovered. Sometimes the tests we go can be severe. There's a reason that Peter speaks of those tests as a refining fire. 
And in the ashes of those fire, we can lose sight of our hope. Now, we don't talk much about that in church. We don't usually tell prospective converts, hey, when you become a Christian, just want you to know you're going to experience fiery trials. If we have a friend or family member that we long to see come to Christ, chances are we're not quoting John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. It's much more comfortable and a much better sales technique to talk about glory and joy and heaven. But people need to know that faith in God does not provide an exemption from suffering. You don't get a discount on suffering because you believe. Suffering is unavoidable for almost everyone. And for some people, both Christians and non-Christians, it can be excruciating. We don't become Christians so that we can escape suffering. We become Christians because we believe in Jesus Christ. I think this is a serious issue and one we need to understand. I've met too many people who act like everything's fine on the outside, but on the inside they're thinking that something must be terribly wrong. Nobody else is unhappy like I'm unhappy. Nobody else goes through pain and hardship and sadness and fear like me. We do people an injustice when we fail to tell them that in this life, suffering is a given. In this world, you will have trouble. But when a, what a person does with suffering is not a given. What a person does with it can mean the difference between hope and despair. This morning we look at one of the most unsettling, discomforting texts in the Bible. The writer is the prophet Jeremiah. He's one of the heroes of the Old Testament. He was faithful to God in one of Israel's most trying periods. You may remember that in the New Testament, some people said that the Lord Jesus himself bore strong resemblance to Jeremiah. But in spite of the fact that Jeremiah remained faithful to his calling and obedient to God, he suffered terribly. He endured deprivation, extreme discomfort, painful humiliation, and it didn't go on for a day or a week or a month. It went on for years. I want to read this text. It's Lamentations chapter 3. We'll read 26 verses, even though it's longer than most passages that we read on a Sunday morning. And I want to read it slowly and let its message soak in. If it helps you to read along, you can do that, either in your own Bible or up on the screen. But depending on how you're wired, it might be best just to close your eyes and listen to the words of a great man of God who came to be known as the weeping prophet. Before I read it, let me give you a little context. Jeremiah wrote before, during, and after the terrible siege of Jerusalem. He lived long enough to see his nation fall into the hands of international enemies. His government dissolved, his population exiled. He had warned his countrymen that this was going to happen. And you know what they did? They called him a traitor. He instructed them on how to live in this perilous time, and the authorities arrested him. Everything he said was rejected. Everything he did was derided. He often felt that everyone, even his own family, hated him. When the terror of war finally overwhelmed the general populace, the people to whom Jeremiah had been preaching began to suffer the same kinds of things that he suffered. 
They were deprived of food and of goods and of home. They were treated like refuse and thrown out like the trash right out of their country and into a foreign land where they lived as refugees. It was in this context that Jeremiah wrote the words we're going to read today. He used his experience as an example to help people find hope in the midst of all the horror. Sometimes as he writes, it's hard to tell whether he's talking about himself or about the city or the nation that he loves. Occasionally he so identifies with the pain that his people are going through that he switches from the first person singular to the first person plural, from I to we. Jeremiah understood what fear and suffering and defeat and uncertainty are all about. The chapter that we're about to read is an acrostic poem. There are actually 13 acrostic poems in the Bible. But you didn't know that. Every third verse in this poem, and the, the, the poem is arranged so that each stanza is three verses long. Every third verse of the poem begins with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And all the verses within each of the standard stanzas begins with the same letter. But it's not for the complex form of the poem that I want you to listen. I want you to listen to the disturbing content, to the sense of confusion, of fear, and despair. And as you listen, remember that this isn't just anyone describing the test of faith and the loss of hope. This is an honored man of God, a priest, one of the great heroes of the Bible. Lamentations 3, the first 26 verses. <clears throat> I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he's turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He's made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship he has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I can't escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without hope or without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor's gone and all that I hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. 
therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In verse 1, Jeremiah says, I'm the man. I'm the man who's seen trouble. I've seen it from the inside out. Not for a month or a year, but year upon year, decade upon decade. I'm not telling you something I don't know. I've been there. How important that is. I have something called pigment dispersion syndrome, which makes me more likely to develop a kind of glaucoma that can lead to blindness. Fortunately, I've reached an age, fortunately, I say this, fortunately, I've reached an age where the risk is actually decreasing. As you get older, it decreases. But if I were to go blind, I'd want to go find my friend Greg Brayton, who's been blind since he was a little boy. Greg knows what it's like. He knows how to navigate life without sight. He's been there. He's lived there. He could help. When it comes to suffering, Jeremiah had been there. He lived there. He knew he could help. Jeremiah doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't cover up his pain with religious platitudes. He doesn't hide his confusion or the sense of isolation that plagues him. Jeremiah says that he walked out of light and into darkness. One of the worst things about darkness is the uncertainty. What's going to happen next? What might I run into in the dark? What might run into me? Prolonged uncertainty is as difficult for some people as prolonged pain. Sometimes it's more difficult. Jeremiah had both pain and uncertainty. Verse 4, my skin and my flesh grow old and my bones are broken. The combination of pain and uncertainty wore him out. And he could see no way out of his problems. He felt, verse 7, walled in and chained down. As far as he could tell, he was going to be stuck in pain and uncertainty for the rest of his life. He wasn't just locked in a room of suffering without a key. He was locked in a room of suffering without a door. He could see no way to move forward. And so he cried out. He cried up. He called out to God. He prayed, no doubt, for relief from the pain. He prayed for light in the darkness, guidance in his confusion. But God didn't answer him. Verse 8, even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Most believers, even those who have seen hundreds and, and even thousands of answers to their prayers in their lifetime, have had this experience at some time or another. They pray desperately, ceaselessly, passionately, but nothing seems to happen. They feel like they're using a phone that's gone dead. There's nobody on the other end. For Jeremiah, the torment came not only from pain and isolation and confusion, but also from humiliation. Verse 14, I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. In another place in the book of Jeremiah, he writes, I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Now, did everyone really mock Jeremiah? Probably not. But did he feel like everyone was mocking him? He certainly did. The result of all of this was that he never had a moment's peace. His mind never stopped. His doubts and pains never left him. He felt besieged 
weighed down, walled in, shut out, broken, and mangled. Those are his words, just some of his words. And it just never stopped. It went on and on. Jeremiah was a young man when all this started. He was an old and broken man before it ended. His troubles lasted for decades. Look at verse 17. I've forgotten what prosperity is. I don't even remember anymore. It had been so long that he couldn't remember a time when things had been good in his life. He couldn't remember what it was like to laugh or to play or even to breathe easily. And just in case you've forgotten, let me remind you again, this is one of God's select servants. This is one of the good guys. Did you notice that his suffering didn't make him doubt God's existence? Not even once. But it did make him question God's complicity in it all. Throughout this poem, he attributes his suffering to God. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. Here we come face to face with the mystery of human suffering and divine sovereignty. Was God to blame for Jeremiah's suffering or for Israel's suffering? I think it would be misleading to put it that way. But was God present in his suffering? Absolutely. Jeremiah knew that even in suffering, God was somehow present. And although he couldn't understand why God did nothing to stop it, here's the thing, he didn't turn away from God. Like Job before him, he questioned God. He cried out to God. Sometimes he shouted at God. God, you deceived me, he says. And I was deceived. But he didn't leave God. That's a mistake people often make, which is the reason there's so few Jeremiah's in the world. When they go through suffering, people don't turn to God. They turn away from him. And because they turn away from him, they fail to see the tears in God's eyes. They fail to see that he enters their suffering and feels it with them. I said that Jeremiah couldn't even remember when he'd been happy, but he could remember when he hadn't been. Verse 20, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. You would think that anyone who had suffered like and as long as Jeremiah would have lost hope. And had he dwelled on the past, even if he had dwelled on the present, he would have. But look at verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Then he turns to God as he's thinking, great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Notice that the thought of verse 21 does not sneak up on Jeremiah like the memories of verse 20. 
The memories of suffering came unbidden. They were involuntary. But there's nothing involuntary about the thought in verse 21. He calls it to mind. He beckons it, summons it. And then he has hope. There's something every child of God must learn to do. Call to mind the truths you have learned and believed. You believed them when things were better because you had concluded that they were true. Believe them now. Your reason for believing God hasn't changed. It's not reason that's challenging your faith. It's pain and emotion and fear. Jeremiah intentionally recalled God's great love. That is phenomenally important. If you look at God through the lens of your painful circumstances, your faith will fail you. But if you look at your painful circumstances through the lens of God's love, your faith will stand. Let me illustrate, and then I'll tell you a story a little later. Your daughter's born with a life-threatening, physically deforming birth defect. If you look at God through the lens of that tragic circumstance, you will not have a God you can trust. But if you look at your daughter through the lens of God's love, it will make all the difference in the world. Will your circumstances change? Probably not. But you will change. And that will change everything else. Learn to ask yourself, am I looking at my circumstances through the lens of God's love? In this situation, are my ideas about God consistent with the God Jesus revealed to me? Am I believing in the Father of Jesus who loves me? Who loves me? Who generously gives good gifts to his children? Who's full of mercy and who never gives up on anyone? Am I believing in the Father Jesus revealed who cares even about a sparrow that falls to the ground? Our English versions often say something like this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. But in Greek, the words, the will of, aren't there. And in Greek, it reads, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground without your father. In other words, every time, A sparrow falls every time one of us falls. The faithful, loving, kind God is there. He sees, he grieves. He who is faithful to himself and his promises says, I am going to make this right. That's the faithfulness that Jeremiah knew and called to mind. When Jeremiah recalled God's love, it gave him great hope. Now listen, it didn't give him clarity. Recalling God's love did not help him discover the reason for all of his pain. It didn't remove his circumstances, but it did give him hope. Ernest Gordon was the dean of the chapel of Princeton University for 26 years. Before that, he was in a Japanese concentration camp. Gordon was an officer He and his fellow prisoners were used as slave labor to build the Thailand-Burma Railroad. And hundreds of his people died from the inhuman treatment they suffered. 
Gordon struggled to help his men make sense of all that they were going through, all they had to endure. But he became deathly ill himself, and he only survived because Chaplain Dusty Miller shared with him his own meager rations. Gordon never forgot what uh, Chaplain Miller told him one day as he was nursing him back to health. Miller told him, a man can experience an incredible amount of pain and suffering if he has hope. When he loses his hope, that's when he dies. Now listen, when a Christian loses his hope, he's really only misplaced it. It's not gone for good. It's only buried in the dust of doubt and a distorted view of God. He can uncover it again by beginning to trust God again. When Jeremiah recalled God's love and remembered his compassion, he made a choice. It may seem like a crazy choice in the torment of his suffering, but the heart that's been touched by God understands this. He said to himself, this is verse 24, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. He'd been waiting a long time already, but now that his hope had been renewed, he could wait longer. He realized that what he needed was not a break, but a savior. Not answers, but the answerer. And when his heart trusted God, his hope was renewed, and he knew again that God would come through. Now let me go back to something we've already seen. It helps to have someone who's been through what we're going through to lean on. I said if I were to go blind, I'd go find Greg Brayton for help. Suffering Israel could go to Jeremiah because he knew where to find hope in suffering. And when we're tested and suffering and weak, we can go to Jesus. He's been there. He's lived there. He knows how to help. The author of Hebrews tells us that he's been tested in every way just as we are, yet without sin. He says, because he himself suffered when he was tested, he's able to help those who are being tested. Jesus knows what it is to trust God in the darkness. Quite literally, when the sun failed to shine and darkness covered the land, he knows what bitterness and gall taste like. He may not have been weighed down by chains like Jeremiah, but he was nailed down by spikes. He who cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knows how to help us. He knows how we feel when God seems nowhere to be found. Go to him. Talk to him. Trust him to help you. All right, let me close by telling you a story with a point I hope you'll remember. When David and Nancy Guthrie had their baby, their second baby, Hope, the doctors told them that there were some small problems. They turned out not to be so small. Hope was born with Zellweger's syndrome. She lived for just 199 days. Let me read to you from Nancy's book, Holding On to Hope. So these are her words. We loved her. We enjoyed her richly and shared her with everyone we could. We held her during her seizures. Then we let her go. The day after we buried Hope, my husband said to me, you know, I think we expected our faith to make this hurt less. 
but it doesn't. Our faith gave us an incredible amount of strength and encouragement while we had hope. And we were comforted by the knowledge that she's in heaven. Our faith keeps us from being swallowed by despair. But I don't think it makes our hurt any less. Early on in my journey, I said to God, okay, if I have to go through this, then give me everything. Teach me everything you want to teach me through this. Don't let this incredible pain be wasted in my life. God allows, this is still her speaking, God allows good and bad into our lives, and we can trust him with both. Trusting God when the miracle doesn't come, when the urgent prayer gets no answer, when there's only darkness, this is the kind of faith God values most of all. I believe that the purpose of hope's short life and my life was and is to glorify God. I would add two things to that. First, hope's life was not short. It was only short here on earth. Second, when we glorify God in the midst of our pain, We are only doing in advance by faith what we will do in the future from sure exuberance and joy. When we glorify God now, even in our suffering, we step out of our present and into our future. Step into your future by glorifying God in your present by faith. And when you do, hope will spring to life. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a hope that does not disappoint us. Now let's pray. God, would you apply these words to us as you see fit? I ask for more than that, Lord. I pray that you'll take truth about who you are that your spirits reveal to us and bring it back to our minds this week and in the weeks to come and incorporate it into our lives and enable us by sheer grace to look at our situation through the lens of your unfailing love and do this all, not because we somehow deserve it, though we do need it, Do it because Jesus made it possible. It's through him that we ask you.